Amen. Thank you, Fred. Well, tonight we're going to look at the second commandment. And so take your Bibles and turn to Exodus chapter 20. And uh, we're going to read verses 4 through 6. Exodus chapter 20, starting in verse 4. God said to Moses and the people of Israel, You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, on the third and the fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing loving kindness to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. That is one of the ten laws for life that God gave us graciously to govern our lives, to guide our lives, to guard us. Uh, it was uh, these, these ten laws, as we're calling them, laws for life, uh, are for our protection, they're for other people's protection, and ultimately, and first and foremost, they are for God's protection. You're like, God's protection? Well, we, we said a couple weeks ago that, that uh, the Ten Commandments are all about guarding God. And uh, you could look at the Ten Commandments this way. The first commandment is, is all about guarding God's glory. Uh, you shall have no other gods before me. Uh, the second commandment, you should have, make no idols. It's God, guarding God's nature. The, the third commandment, uh, which is don't use the Lord's name in vain, is guarding God's name. The fourth commandment is remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. So it's guarding, uh, intended to guard God's day. Uh, the fifth commandment, honor your father and mother, uh, is guarding parental authority. The sixth commandment, uh, thou shalt not kill, is guarding the sanctity of life. Uh, the seventh commandment, thou shalt not commit adultery, is guarding marriage uh, and, and purity and faithfulness. The eighth commandment, thou shalt not steal, is guarding others' property. Uh, the ninth commandment, Thou shalt not lie, guarding others' reputation. And then finally, the 10th commandment, thou shalt not covet, and that's guarding our hearts. We said that you could divide these 10 laws into two categories. The first four commandments guide and guard our relationship with who? God. And the the last six uh, commandments guide and guard our relationship with who? Other, Other people, our fellow man. And that's why when Jesus was asked, what is the greatest commandment? He said, what? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And he really summarized the Ten Commandments in those uh, two simple commands. And so again, I want to encourage you to be thinking about uh, the Ten Commandments in those two categories, our relationship with God and our relationship with one another. And that's a real simple way to memorize them. Just knock out the four in your mind first. Okay, I, gotta, I don't have to memorize 10, I just have to memorize 4 and 6, right? Break it down and uh, just think it through logically. Number one, no other gods. Number two, no idols. Number three, don't take the Lord's name in vain. And number four, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Those are the first four commandments. You got those? You got them down? 
And, uh, and then the second six deal with relationships with other human beings. The first human beings that we need to learn to relate to when we're born are who? Our mom and dad, our parents. So honor your father and mother. And then, uh, then you start thinking about, okay, what are the, 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 the biggest sins to maybe the lesser sins, the greater sins to the lesser sins, not that any sin is greater or lesser than another, but um, we would say the first uh, thing we need to re- relate to after we learn to submit to our parents' authority is to never take somebody else's life, right, on our life. So thou shalt not kill, right? And then after that, second only that would be what? Thou shalt not commit adultery, and then after that, don't steal, don't lie, and don't covet. And so just kind of think them through logically like that, and hopefully you'll remember them for life. Uh, and you should, considering the fact that they are laws for life, for your life. Um, and so tonight, we're going to look at the second commandment, which God gave to guard his nature or his character. And, and there is nothing in our day that needs to be guarded and protected more than the character of God. I'm sure you're familiar with what Paul said in Romans chapter 1, that since the creation of the world, God's invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so everyone is without excuse. And yet, even though everyone knows that, he, that God exists... And that he's worthy to be honored and, and thanked and, and, and obeyed. More and more people in the world are exchanging the true knowledge of God for a lie and worshiping images in the form of man and birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Straight out of Romans 1. But what's even worse is more and more people in the church are doing a similar thing. And what I mean by that is the God who's being preached about from from the average pulpit these days and taught about in Sunday school and sung about in many of the worship songs that are being sung today and written about in religious literature, really it bears little resemblance to the God of the Bible. And Christians are being robbed of the true knowledge of God. And so consequently, many have a distorted image of what God is really like. Listen to what R.C. Sproul wrote in, in a book called Whatever Happened to the Reformation. He said, quote, as far as, I'm concerned, as far as I'm concerned, the greatest issue facing the Christian church as we move into the 21st century is the character of God. Unless we recommit ourselves to understand who God is and what he is like, nothing else in the Bible will make sense. Apart from understanding God's justice, wrath, mercy, and holiness, there is no way we can understand the gospel. The cross will make no sense to us if we do not understand why God's character required it. But if you understand the character of God, then not only does the gospel make sense, but the doctrines of Scripture, Christ, and everything else fall into place. On the other hand, everything else can be correct apart from your doctrine of God and you are still a pagan. In other words, you might believe everything else perfectly, but if your doctrine of God is wrong, you're still a pagan. You're still an idolater, Sproul says. You may be an inerratist. In other words, you believe in the inerrancy of Scripture. Your eschatology might be right on target, what you believe about the end times. You may never miss a quiet time or an opportunity to go to church, but if you do not worship and serve the right God, you worship and serve a false one. And so to 
ensure that we worship and serve the right God in the right way, God established the first two commandments. The first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me, tells us who we're to worship, tells us who the right God is. And then the second commandment, you shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness uh, of of one. Uh, The second commandment tells us how we're to worship him. In other words, what is the right way to worship the right God? Philip Ryken, in his book on the Ten Commandments, said it this way, The first commandment has to do with worshiping the right God. The second commandment has to do with worshiping worshiping the right God in the right way. Whereas the first commandment forbids us to worship false gods, the second commandment forbids us to worship the true God falsely. How we worship matters as much to God as, as to whom we worship. We may not worship him any way we like, but only the way that he is commanded. And I think that's really important, that it's not just who we're worshiping, but it's how we're worshiping him. It's very important to God. And so he gave us the second commandment. And and I've broken up these verses, uh, verses 4 through 6, into two uh, sections. Number one, we're going to see the rule or the command. And then we're going to see, secondly, the reason for that rule. Okay, so let's look, first of all, let's look at the rule. Let's look at the command in verses 4 and 5. He says, You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them. So he begins by saying, Don't make for yourself an idol. Literally a graven image. Some of your Bibles might even say that, which means anything that's engraved or carved, anything crafted or or created by the hand of man, carved out of wood, chiseled out of stone, hammered out of metal, you name it, don't make it. And he said, don't make anything in the likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. That pretty much covers it, right? Don't, don't make anything, don't make an idol out of anything in the heavens, the sun, the moon, the stars. Don't make anything, an idol from here on earth, uh, animals. Don't make any idol in the image of anything in the water, a fish, a crocodile, other sea life. It's interesting. Turn over to Deuteronomy chapter 4 real quick. Deuteronomy chapter 4, he says basically the same thing. Deuteronomy 4.15. So watch yourselves carefully since you did not see any form on the day of the Lord, day the Lord spoke to you at Horeb from the midst of the fire. So he's saying, hey, be careful. Uh, and, and the reason why you need to be careful is because you didn't see any form of me when I spoke to you at Horeb from the midst of the fire. In other words, I am what? invisible, so that you do not act corruptly and make a graven image for yourselves in the form of any figure, the likeness of male or female, the likeness of any animal that is on the earth, the likeness of any winged bird that flies in the sky, the likeness of anything that creeps on the ground, and likeness of any fish that is in the water below the earth, and beware not to lift up your eyes to heaven and see the sun and the moon and the stars, all the host of heaven, and be drawn away and worship them and serve them, those which the Lord your God has allotted to all the peoples under the whole heaven But the Lord has taken you and brought you out of the iron furnace from Egypt to be a people for his own possession as today. So God knew that they would be tempted 
because they did not have a, an, an actual image of God, a picture of God. Uh, they, say they, saw, they, they saw no form of God, and so the natural in human inclination is what? I, I want something to see. Uh, that's why the Bible talks about how we, we live by faith, not by sight. But we always want to see something. And uh, I think that part of the issue here was that the nation of Israel had spent the last 400 years uh, in Egypt and had been greatly affected by the Egyptian religious practices. They, uh, the, the, there, were, there were all kinds of idols and images um, that uh, the Egyptians worshipped. I mean, the things that he's saying about don't, don't worship the animals, don't worship the sea creatures, don't worship the, the sun or the moon or the stars. These are all the kinds of things that, that the, the Egyptians had made idols and images of. I mean, if you know anything about some of the Egyptian gods, there's the god Horus, and he has the head of a falcon. Uh, there's Anubis, the head of the jackal. That's probably the most familiar one if you've studied Egyptian history. But his point is, God, his point was this, that, that, that I chose you to, to set you apart from all the other nations of the world. And the thing that would be truly unique about Israel was not just that they were monotheists uh, as opposed to polytheists. They, they were living in a polytheistic world where there was, there was many gods and they were going to be monotheists. But, but this was even more setting apart and that was that their God was invisible. You think about that. Every other nation in the world, they, they believed in multiple gods, and there was all these idols and images and say, that's God, and that's Baal, and that's whatever, right? And they were actually looking at these images, and, and, and Israel's saying, no, there's only one God, and they're like, well, where is he? And they say, well, he's invisible. And you can just imagine all the other nations going, <laughs> are you kidding me? You expect this, right? I mean, so the point is God... Uh, insisted that Israel make no idols or images of him. Why? Because every pagan city had its idols and temples and altars that, that served as a physical representation of their gods. But God said, I don't want you to do that with me. Why? Because no image that we could ever carve out and, and no idea that we could ever conjure up would ever come close to accurately resembling God. He transcends all idols, all ideas. He, he, we, we could never shape or paint or carve or chisel anything that would be an adequate represent, representation of who he is. One man said it this way, that it would be like asking a scholar to explain the history of the world in one sentence or a musician to play Beethoven's Fifth Symphony on a referee's whistle. That's a pretty good image, isn't it? I mean, can you imagine... Trying to play Beethoven's Fifth Symphony on a, on a whistle, referee's whistle? It ain't happening. You would butcher it. it wouldn't even, you probably wouldn't even recognize it. So the point is, it just can't be done. It's absolutely impossible because God is incomparable. Isaiah 40, verse 18, To whom then will you liken God, or what likeness will you compare with him? There, there isn't anything on this planet that you could possibly liken God to and compare God to. And, and another reason why it's absolutely impossible uh, to, to come up with an idol or an image is because God is invisible. 1 Timothy 1, 7, Now the, to the King eternal, immortal, invisible. 2 Timothy 6, 16, God dwells in unapproachable light whom no man has seen or can see. John 4, 24, God is spirit, 
and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. In other words, God wants our worship to be spiritual rather than what? Visual. He doesn't want to be worshipped through any picture or, or statue or anything intended to depict him. Because whatever we came up with to represent him would be less than he truly is. That's his point. Again, Riken says it this way, an idol makes the infinite God finite, the invisible God visible, the omnipotent God impotent, the all-present God local, the living God dead, and the spiritual God material. In short, it makes him the exact opposite of what he actually is. Another commentator said this, in the second commandment, God, by implication, is saying the following, because I am the living, personal God, the infinite, eternal spirit, you must never attempt to depict me visually, for it is impossible to portray such attributes. The moment you reduce me to a puny picture or a lifeless image, you insult my attributes and set a small God in your mind. How can anyone illustrate the supreme spirit being? How can we portray one who is infinite? What model or picture could convey even a hint of eternal existence or unlimited wisdom and power? How could we represent God's sublime sublime holiness and justice? Can we produce anything which is utterly flawless and stunningly perfect? The moment he is reduced to a visual representation we are bound to lose all real awe and wonder at the almighty and glorious God. And so not only do visual represent, representations of God distort him, that's what all those quotes are talking about, uh, but they also distract us from him. God wants to be the sole object of our worship. He doesn't want us to worship objects. He wants us to worship him. And we worship him in spirit and in truth. Let me give you an example of this. Uh, And and some of you who may have um, grown up in the Catholic Church, uh, maybe have been a part of the Catholic Church in your past. Uh, I grew up with a lot of friends uh, in Massachusetts, as you can imagine, a very Catholic uh, state. And uh, so all my buddies were Catholic. And and I would go to their mass with them just to, to build a relationship with them. And, and so I would invite, so I can invite them to our church. <laughs> I'll go to your church, you come to my church. That was kind of the deal. And, uh, but it was interesting to me how, uh, and, and if you've been in a Catholic church, you know that the main image in that church is what? It is, is a crucifix. And you've got Jesus hanging on the cross. And sometimes people will stare at that to help them focus their hearts on God, but for many, it's become an object of worship rather than worshiping God himself, that they worship the crucifix, and they come up and they touch it, and it's almost like they're worshiping that image, that, that idol. Listen to an interesting um, section from a commentary that I was using here to study the, the Ten Commandments. It, it, it goes like this. We have only to look at the history of the Greek and Latin churches for abundant confirmation 
of how palatable or palpable it is that the standard of a pure and spiritual worship is there most sadly and fearfully degraded. In other words, look at the, look at the Catholic Church, for example. Look at some of the Greek Orthodox churches and, and, and the Russian Orthodox churches and some of these uh, high churches with you know, you know, uh, just the scents and the, the signs and the, the, all the rituals and things like that. And how true spiritual worship is, is sadly and fearfully degraded. He said that the spirit of devotion has been lost in that of downright idolatry. In other words, the reason why it's been lost, the spirit of devotion has been lost in downright idolatry. From crosses and relics, they proceeded to images and pictures, not only of God and Christ and the Holy Ghost, but of the Virgin and of the saints and martyrs without number, until those beings and the paintings or carvings which represented them, originally designed as mere intercessors and aids to devotion, became at least to the more ignorant actual objects of worship. And again, if you've been into a Greek Orthodox church or a, a Catholic church, not only do they have the crucifix, oftentimes they'll have images, little figurines of all the saints, right? Uh, again, as, as means of maybe aiding devotion, but unfortunately they become actual objects of worship. Now and then an individual may perhaps be found exhibiting a depth and fervor of pious feeling that has resisted these troublesome influences, but in general, what superstition, what profanation, what mockery under the name of worship there prevail? Forgiveness of sin by human authority, the withholding of the Bible from the people, and the grossest immorality among large portions of the priesthood are among the fruits known and read of all men of the practical violation of the second commandment. In other words, all the, all the um, rituals, all the relics, um, and all the problems uh, that are going on in these types of churches really stem from violating the second commandment. Now, as you might guess by the language, uh, as I read, that commentator was not somebody that wrote this uh, just a few years ago. He was writing in the mid-1800s. Yet, you might also assume that he was commenting on the recent headlines regarding some of the, some of the sex scandals um, with the Catholic Church. Uh, in recent years, right, we've seen um, just story after story after story, just horrific things that had gone on, have gone on for years. And, 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 and I, what he's basically saying is that is a direct consequence of breaking the second commandment. Where, where did all that stuff start? It started by coming up with idols and, and images uh, that God commanded us not to, and one thing led to another. That's exactly what Romans, Romans 1 talks about. And, and I'll turn there and read it um, for you. Romans chapter 1, verse 22. Professing to be wise, they became fools, and they exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man, and of birds, and of four-footed animals, and crawling creatures. Therefore, as a result, God gave them over in the lust of their hearts to impurity. So that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions. For their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And the same way also the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in the desire toward one another. Men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. 
You see the connection? I mean, you start with, with, with rejecting the true knowledge of God. You break the second commandment. You start coming up with images that you start to worship in place of God. And, and next thing you know, you're committing immorality. And, and, and the worst kind, homosexuality. Um, it's just a degrading thing, all because the church did not keep the second commandment. Now, does this mean that God forbids or was forbidding all kinds of paintings or statues, that this was some kind of ban against all artwork <laughs> in the church. Uh, per, personally, I don't think there's anything wrong with statues or pictures or, or paintings, uh, even of biblical people or, or biblical events. I think the point God was making was that it's wrong to paint pictures and make statues of him or any other object that could be used to help us worship him. That's the point. Uh, a, few, a few chapters later, uh, in, in Exodus, God gave Moses instructions for building the tabernacle, which contained lots of artistic design and required great craftsmanship. There was the Ark of the Covenant, and there was the, the two gold cherubim. Uh, but the point is, none of those things were designed to resemble God or to enhance the worship of God. This is a, probably a good place to mention uh, about pictures or statues of Jesus. Uh, there are some uh, in the church today, some Christians feel very strongly that, that based on the second commandment here that we shouldn't have any pictures or statues of Jesus. Um, some reason that because Jesus is God that it's wrong to paint pictures of Jesus or have actors portray him in movies. And sometimes you may have seen a movie uh, more old school where, where they never show the face of, of Jesus. All you see is the back of the actor because they just don't want to show the face of Jesus. Well, um, you could go in my office and I have a little figurine of Jesus washing Peter's feet, washing one of the disciples' feet. Uh, we've got a picture in our office center of Jesus crouching down in prayer. Um, uh, but the point is, I, I don't bow down to those things. I don't worship those things. It's not like I, I, I go by that picture and I kind of do, you know, do this to it or you know, I don't rub the head of Jesus on my desk and before I come to preach. or you know, uh, These are just images, right? And, and furthermore, I think these kinds of pictures and statues really depict Jesus' humanity, not his deity. And so they don't violate the spirit of the second commandment. That, that we've not created an image uh, in violation of, uh, of, of, of what, what God was saying here. So again, you may be one that feels strongly about that. I'm not sure, but um, if you are, I'd be interested to talk to you about that because I think at some point that can tend towards legalism. Um, and so uh, one of my favorite images, frankly, is if you go to Dallas Theological Seminary, uh, in, the, in, the, in one of the large atrium areas outside, uh, they have this beautiful bronze statue, life-size statue of Jesus washing one of the disciples' feet. I think what a great picture, what a great image for those men going to seminary uh, to, to remember uh, the principle of servant leadership, right? That the Son of Man did not come to, to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. So um, anyway, so practical application of this rule here. So you have the rule, 
Don't make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on earth beneath or in the water or under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them. That's the rule. But then notice he gives the reason for the rule. The reason for the rule. He says, For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, uh, on the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing loving kindness to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. So what is the reason why God gave us the second commandment? Well, it was because he is a jealous God. Now, you don't typically see this in any books on the attributes of God. You don't see a chapter on God's jealousy, but it is, a, it is one of God's holy attributes. And because he's sinless, we know that his jealousy is pure. It's not like our jealousy that's typically suspicious or distrustful or smothering or controlling or insecure or possessive, really. That's oftentimes how our jealousy, human jealousy, is expressed. The fact that God is jealous simply means that he is zealous that our devotion be given exclusively to him. He wants all our attention and all of our affection and all of our adoration focused on him and him alone. And the reason he is so jealous is because he loves us so much. Any husband who truly loves his wife couldn't stand seeing her in the arms of another man. That's the point. And throughout the the, the Old Testament... God likens himself to Israel's husband and Israel as his unfaithful wife who broke her covenant that she made with him by committing idolatry. And uh, we see that in the the book of Hosea. We've studied that together. Uh, And in God's eyes, idolatry was synonymous with infidelity. In fact, the Bible frequently refers to idolatry as spiritual adultery. We've talked about that in length when we studied the book of Hosea. Uh, Listen to what the New Testament says. This is James chapter 4, verses 4 and 5. You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the scripture speaks to no purpose? The spirit which he's made to dwell in us jealously desires us. I'll never forget when we were going through the book of Hosea and, and, and I had spent, um, I guess, the introductory message uh, kind of uh, setting the scene for, for the story of Hosea and I just talked about spiritual adultery and how God called the nation of Israel adulterers. He likened them to adulterers and, and, and here in, in the book of James, James, James was writing to believers and uh, he calls them adulteresses. And, and someone came to me and was very offended that, that, uh, that, that I would say that, that, uh, that we as Christians are adulteresses. Um, and I simply said, well, I didn't say it. James did. <laughs> and, and, and are you telling me there's never a time when you're not unfaithful to God? You're always faithful to your relationship with God? Well, no, I'm unfaithful at times. Well, he calls that being, he likens it to being an adulterer. Being a friend with the world, you're being hostile towards God. And so just like the Israelites, when when God catches us flirting with the world, if you will, or sleeping with the enemy, he has every right to be jealous. 
And when we're unfaithful to him, he disciplines us. And when we're faithful to him, he rewards us. And that's essentially what he goes on to say here in Exodus chapter 20. He talks about, he talks about first of all, the punishment when we're unfaithful to him. And then the promise when we are faithful to him. Look, first of all, the punishment. He says here, I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children on the third and fourth generations of those who hate me. Now, you're probably aware that that verse is often misinterpreted and misapplied. Uh, I've, I've heard that verse um, uh, explained to mean all sorts of crazy things, um, talking about generational sins and generational demons and generational this and that. And um, the, the point is, you say, well, okay, what does it mean then? Well, number one, it must be understood, whatever it means, right? It must be understood in light of what God has said in other places in the Bible. Uh, again, if this is an unclear passage, it, it, you don't naturally just say, oh, that's what it means, right? It's, it's, it's unclear at first. Well, then you find clearer passages throughout the Bible to help you interpret the unclear passage. So listen to some verses here. Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 16. Fathers shall not be put to death for their sons, nor shall sons be put to death for their fathers. Everyone shall be put to death for his own sin. Ezekiel eighteen nineteen. The person who sins will die. The son will not bear the punishment for the father's iniquity, nor will the father bear the punishment for the son's iniquity. John chapter 9, you probably more, more familiar with this verse, when uh, the disciples and Jesus came across this man that was born blind, they said to him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he should be born blind? And they were thinking, well, maybe the kid was blind as a, as a judgment. God was judging the parents for their sin, and so they had a blind son. And Jesus said it was neither that this man sinned nor his parents, but it was in order that the works of God might be displayed in him. So all that to say, whatever this verse in Exodus 20 is, is talking about, we know it can't mean that God judges subsequent generations for a person's sin. You see that? I think the best way to understand these verses is simply that, that one generation sets the spiritual tone for the next generation. In other words, our kids and our grandkids will be affected by our sin. They won't be judged or punished for our sin, but they will be affected by our sin. Why is that? Because children and grandchildren experience the natural consequences of their parents' or grandparents' sin. I think maybe the simplest way to understand it is that your kids pick up your sinful habits. How's that? Your kids pick up your sinful habits. Notice he says here, on the third, visiting the iniquity of the fathers, on the children, on the third and the fourth generations of those who hate me. In biblical times, it, was, it wasn't unusual for three or four generations to live in the same house. That doesn't happen in our day and age, does it? And we pretty much got our immediate family. Uh, my mom and dad don't live with us. Our grandparents don't live, their, their parents don't live with us, right? But that was very common that you had a house full of, 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 of multiple generations. And, and, and if you were brought up in that house, 
that was full of iniquity and idolatry, you would be prone to practice the same sinful patterns when you grew up, and consequently, you would experience the same punishment as your parents did. And he's talking about of those who hate me, notice he says. So the children and grandchildren who were, were raised in a home where there was God-haters as parents or grandparents, um, they also turned out to be haters of God too. And they followed in the footsteps of their parents and would be judged accordingly. And so I think just the, the sobering reality of what God was saying there is that the destinies of our kids and our grandkids are in some way dependent on the way we live our lives as parents and grandparents, especially those of us who are fathers and grandfathers. Again, Riken writes this. He says, this commandment contains a solemn warning for fathers. So if you're a dad in here, listen up. When a man refuses to love God passionately and to worship God properly, the consequences of his sin will last for generations. The guilt of a man who treasures idols in his heart will corrupt his entire family. And in the end, they'll all be punished. But a man who loves God supremely, a man who bows before him in genuine worship and serves him with true praise, will see the blessing of God rest on his household forever. And then he asks this question, what kind of life are you leading? What kind of worship are you giving? What kind of legacy will you leave? Proverbs 20, verse 7 says, A righteous man who walks in his integrity, how blessed are his sons after him. Question, man, is are you walking in integrity in your, in your life, in your home? Or are you being a hypocrite? holding your wife and your, your kids to a higher standard than you're holding yourself. And so there's the punishment there uh, if, if you don't uh, follow this commandment. But then there's also the promise. Notice the promise. Here's the good news. But I, the Lord, am a jealous God, and I not only visit the iniquity of the fathers on the children, on the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but I also show loving kindness to thousands to those who love me and keep my commandments. Literally, based on Deuteronomy 7, 9, he's talking about, uh, you could add the word generations in there, but showing loving kindness to thousands of generations to those who love me and who keep my commandments. That word loving kindness there is the Hebrew word hesed, which is a, a beautiful, powerful word in the Hebrew language. It, it, it's, a, it's a word that was used for God's unconditional covenant-keeping love. And basically what he's saying is God loves those who love and obey him. He loves them. To those who love me and keep my commandments, the point is we show our love to God by our obedience. It's one thing to say, oh, I love God. Uh, hopefully you'd all say that. I love God. Well, great. Prove it. Prove your love for him by obeying him. Don't say you love him and be living a life of disobedience. You don't really love him. 1 John 5, 3, For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not what? Burdensome. Again, I've said this before. If, if obeying the Bible, living the truth of God's word, is a pain in the neck to you, 
then you don't love the Lord. You're just going through a bunch of motions. It's not genuine. It's not real. It, it shouldn't be burdensome. It should be a joy. It doesn't mean it's easy. <laughs> it's hard to obey. But it's, it's not a burden in the sense of, oh, man, this stinks, man. i gotta, I got to obey. I, I really want to do that. I really want to do that. And I wish I could do that. No, it's, it's not a burden to obey. It, 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 that doesn't mean it's always easy. But do you notice here that the promise of blessing is greater than the threat of punishment? Notice what he says here. But showing loving kindness to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. Uh, again, it's greater. The, 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 the promise of blessing lasts a whole lot longer than the threat of, uh, of punishment. It lasts forever. I think the point is that God is so much more gracious and loving than he is angry and wrathful. God is more inclined to grace than he is wrath. I mean, in, in Exodus 34, remember when Moses wanted to see his glory and, and, and God says, well, I, I can't let you see that because It'll kill you. And so he says, I'll put you in the rock and I'll walk by. And, and so he was all excited. Moses was going to get to see the Lord. Well, it never says what he saw. It simply says what he heard. Then the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, in, in sin. Yet, he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. Well, what is the emphasis of that, though? Is that, that's kind of an afterthought, right? The main emphasis is, hey, you want to know my glory? Let me tell you about me. I'm all about compassion, grace, slow to anger, abounding loving kindness and truth, um, forgiveness, forgiving iniquity, transgression is sin, And so again, the reason here that God gives for keeping the second commandment, that he's a jealous God and that he will either punish us or he promises to bless us, I mean, that that is both a warning and a great incentive, a great motivation. And and I think it's interesting that God repeated this command, the command to not make an idol, to not make images of him, to worship him. Uh, he repeated that immediately after he finished the Ten Commandments. Look down in Exodus chapter 20. He gets done talking about thou shalt not covet. And then notice what he says straight away in verse 22. Then the Lord said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, You yourselves have seen that I have spoken to you from heaven. You shall not make other gods besides me, gods of silver or gold, the gods of gold you shall not make for yourselves. By the way, he goes on to say, but what you can make is an altar where you can worship, you can, you can offer sacrifices, and you can worship me through that. Totally different than, than bound down to an idol. He, he reiterates it again in Exodus 23, verse 24, uh, that when they were to go into the land of Canaan, they were to, to, to destroy the idols of the Canaanites. Chapter 23, verse 24 you shall not worship their gods, nor serve them, nor do according to their deeds, but you shall utterly overthrow them and break their sacred pillars in pieces. I want you to come in and smash all their idols. 
And so it seems that God gave special emphasis to this particular commandment along with this extra warning. There, there was no warning or promise for the first commandment, was there? He just said, you shall have no other gods before me, period. Here he gives, he gives a warning and he gives a promise. And he expands on how important it is that you keep the second commandment. Um, and in light of that, you think the Israelites would, would have gotten the picture that, hey, this is a really important commandment. We better not break this one. And yet, before Moses could even make it back down the mountain with the Ten Commandments, they'd already disobeyed the second commandment. How? The golden calf. They fashioned this, uh, all of their gold jewelry into this image of a calf, this golden calf, and they were worshiping a graven image. And we see that in Exodus 32, just, just a few chapters later. And uh, we don't have time to read the story tonight, but you, you think you know the story well, that uh, the people got impatient that Moses was taking so long to come back down the mountain. They're like, hey, where's this guy that led us out of, Israel, out of Egypt? And they were having a hard time adjusting to the fact that, that now they had a new God and he was invisible. Not sure what we think about that. Can't really see him. And so they wanted a God that they could see. And they craved some kind of tangible image of God uh, like they had back in Egypt. And so they made an idol in the form of a young bull, which, by the way, was a pagan symbol of sexual power. And uh, as you know, it says that they were worshiping this, this, uh, this, this idol, this, this calf, and, and, um, and, and they were drinking, and, 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 and it says they got up to play. That's what it says in Exodus 32, which means they got up to have sex with one another. It was just a full-blown orgy. But this, this golden calf served as a visual representation of God, which they, they, they probably thought that would help them worship and serve God better. Well, we really want to worship God. We just need to see something, and that'll just help us. But their idolatry led to what? Immorality, just like we said we've seen in the history of the church, certain branches of the church. Um, and that's happened over and over and over again throughout history, that idolatry leads to immorality. And so God was greatly offended, as you know, and, and uh, the only thing that uh, kept him from wiping them all out and starting from scratch, uh, he said, hey, Moses, don't worry about this, man. I'll just wipe these knuckleheads out and I'll start all over again. And, and Moses made an impassioned plea that God would have mercy and, and, and God... Uh, listened to Moses, if you will, and, and, and relented. But what the point is this, the, the golden calf, which we all know so well, serves as an example for all of us to not crave what the Israelites craved, which was what? A visible manifestation of God. But we're to flee from Idolatry. Listen to what it says in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. You're familiar with this passage, I'm sure. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 6 and 7. Now these things happened as examples for us so that we would not crave evil things as they also crave. So uh, uh, basically Paul is using uh, the example of the nation of Israel and their time in the wilderness and basically saying, hey, avoid the same mistakes that they made. Don't make the same mistakes they made. 
And he says in verse 7, do not be idolaters. First thing he says, hey, I'm, 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 I'm using the, the Israelites as an example so you wouldn't crave the evil things that they crave. Number one, first on my list, do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. What was he referring to? The golden calf. Verse 14, look down if you're there, 1 Corinthians 10. After he's all done talking about this, he says, therefore, my beloved, flee from what? Idolatry. Flee. Run away from it. Don't have anything to do with it. Get as far away from it as possible. Now, you might be sitting here tonight thinking, man, I'm glad this isn't an issue in my life. This is not something I struggle with. I mean, I know this, this really applies to the pagans living in, in, in India and in China, the jungles of Africa, who actually worship and bow down to idols. I mean, I've never bowed down to an idol in my life, and, and I'm not about to. And, um, you know, even when you're in the Chinese restaurant, you see the Buddha, and you're like, that's weird, right? You don't go over and bow down to it. You don't rub its belly. Although Blake and Billy and I used to rub the belly of the Chinese restaurant over here just to be stupid. Um, but, uh, right, you go into the nail salon and you see them offering, right, uh, you, even here, right, you can see in some of these places, they've got their little altar set up and they're worshiping, you know, their ancestors, they're worshiping Buddha, they're worshiping other things. You know, I, I guarantee you there's nobody that goes by and kind of like, and, and walks in, I hope my nail thing goes good, you know, whatever. Uh, you don't do that. But this is where we need to understand that this commandment doesn't just apply to external images, but also issues of the heart and mind that qualify as idols. Turn in your Bibles to Ezekiel 14. And this this passage is a game changer when it comes to uh, helping us understand that all of us are guilty of violating the second commandment even if we haven't ever bowed down to an actual idol. Here, Ezekiel, the prophet, is is rebuking the idolatrous elders of Israel. And just listen to what it says here and follow along with me. Ezekiel chapter 14, verse 1. Then some elders of Israel came to me and sat down before me, and the word of the Lord came to me saying... Son of man, these men have set up their idols, where? Does it say up on the mountains, in the temples, in the caves, where most people would, uh, the, the, the pagan nations would set up their idols on the, on the hilltops, in the caves, and, and, and they'd carve them out of the side of a, a rock, um, or in the temple. Where, where are these idols? In their hearts. Underline that. And they have put right before their faces the stumbling block of their iniquity. Should I be consulted by them at all? In other words, say, these elders are coming to consult me through you, Ezekiel. Should I even consult with these these guys? They've set up idols in their hearts. Therefore, speak to them and tell them, thus says the Lord God, any man of the house of Israel who sets up his idols on the mountains. Is that what it says? No, he sets up his idols in his heart, puts right before his face the stumbling block of his iniquity, and then comes to the prophet, I, the Lord, will be brought to give him an answer in the matter in view of the multitude of his idols, i.e., in his heart, in order to lay hold of the hearts of the house of Israel who are estranged from me through all their idols. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, repent and turn away from your idols and turn your faces away from all your abominations. What idols are you talking about? 
for anyone of the house of Israel or of the immigrants who stay in Israel who separates himself from me, sets up his idols in his heart, puts right before his face the stumbling block of his iniquity and then comes to the prophet to inquire of me for himself. I, the Lord, will be brought to answer him in my own person. I will set my face against that man and make him a sign and a proverb and I will cut him off from among my people so will uh, so you will know that I am the Lord. So this takes the sin of idolatry to a whole other level. Idolatry is not necessarily what we bow down to on the outside, but what we bow down to on the inside. And the root cause of, of, of all of our sin is what, what we could call, what Ezekiel calls, the idols of the heart. And every time you sin, you're guilty of idolatry. Why? Because your heart has turned away from worshiping and serving and fearing and trusting the one true God. And we know that worshiping anyone or, or anything other than God is what? Idolatry. And, and essentially what idolatry is, it's, a, it's, it's substituting something else for God to find satisfaction, happiness, contentment, security, or comfort. And so the challenge for us whenever we, we sin is to try to discern what our heart is wanting, what it's worshiping, what it's serving, what it's fearing, what it's trusting, what it's, what it's seeking after. We need to, to learn how to identify the specific desires or the pursuits that have become idols in our hearts. You say, whoa, that sounds like really deep and how would I ever figure that out? Well, I think... Uh, the New Testament gives us some, uh, some, some, some good help. First John chapter 2, verse 15 and 16. Do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And so John summarized all the idols of the heart under three basic idols. Three categories. What are they? First of all, the lust of the eyes, which is, 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 is um, excuse me, the lust of the flesh was the first one. The lust of the flesh, which is basically the controlling desire for physical gratification. Lust of the flesh. It's, it's all about your body, what makes you feel good. Uh, that, that could be related to all sorts of things. Um, the sin of laziness, the sin of gluttony, the sin of sexual morality, anything related to your body, that's one idol of the heart, the lust of the flesh. And then there's the lust of the eyes, which is that controlling, consuming desire for material things, for things you can see, like I see that and I want that. It, it's stuff. And then the last idol is the pride of life, which is the controlling desire to, to be important, to be popular, um, to be highly esteemed by others. Um, essentially, it's pride. And so that's always a good place to start, right? Whatever you're struggling with in your heart, right, you're seeing the sin manifested on the outside, and you say, okay, what's causing that on the inside? That's just, uh, what's the root of that? What is the idol? Well, it's either the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, or the boastful pride of life. It's one of those three. fits under one of those categories. And then James is also very helpful. James chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. 
What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You're envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. So question is, James is asking, hey, why are you guys fighting all the time? Why, why, do, why, does your, why do your kids, why are they always squabbling with each other? Why, why are there always fights between your kids? Why are you always breaking up? Why are you always having to play referee as a parent? If you have multiple kids, you know what that's like. You know, whack, whack. You run in there like, what happened? And somebody's got one toy, the other one wants the other, right? Why is that? Why do you as a husband and wife get into frequent arguments? Why? Why do you argue? Why do you fight? He says, I'll tell you the answer. Is not the source your what? Pleasures that wage war in your members do lust and do not have. And so you commit murder. The reason why you sin is because you wanted something and didn't get it. Now that's it, bottom line. You, you want that pleasure, you, you wanted something, you had some expectation for pleasure, uh, you desired something, and, and, and it didn't happen, and, and so you either sinned to get what you wanted, or you, or you had a pity party because you didn't get what you wanted and you sinned in that way. The point is, why, why am I having an attitude right now? Um, well, because I didn't get what I wanted. And, and I'm sinning because I didn't get what I wanted. And so, again, these are, these are very helpful, I, I think, passages to, to really um, examine what are, the, what are the idols of the heart. And so next time you get angry at your spouse or you get angry at your kids, say, well, okay, wait a minute, time out. I got angry, but what was the idol? What, what did I want? What was I desiring? For example, you're sitting, guys, you're, you come home from work, you're, you're beat, you're, you're, you're sitting there on the couch, you got your newspaper, or you got your magazine, your iPad out there, you're watching TV, catching up on the news, watching some uh, sports center, and all of a sudden, World War III breaks out down the hallway in the kids' bedroom, right? And, and, and they start yelling and screaming, and what do you do? You take your paper and you, you take that remote control and whip it into the back of the couch, and you stomp down those, right, the, the hallway, and you lay into those, what is your problem? Why are you, you just, you just tear into your kids. And they're like, oh. Right? Well, what was the issue? Were you mad at your kids, necessarily? What, was, what were you wanting? What were you desiring? Was the issue really um, that you got angry? No, the issue was that you had an idol of your heart, and the idol was, at that point, you just wanted to rest. You just wanted to kind of sit there and be a couch potato, and you didn't want to get interrupted. And so, ultimately, it was a selfish desire that you had that I don't, have to, I don't want to work anymore. I'm home, okay? I did my work for the day. And right, so you start analyzing what was it that motivated me to get mad, and you start dealing with these idols of the heart. Now, that's a whole other way of thinking about the second commandment. Let's just go back to what I alluded to at the beginning of tonight's message regarding the idols of the mind. We talked about idols of the heart. Let's talk about idols of the mind. And so, the second commandment forbids not just material images that don't truly represent God, we talked about that, but it also, I think, forbids mental images that don't truly represent God. A person's wrong thoughts of God are as detestable to him as the Israelite's golden calf. In other words, if you think wrongly about God, you might as well have just, you might as well just have, have, have built a golden calf. 
Why do I say that? Because God's word clearly says believing the wrong things about God is idolatry. And again, we typically associate idolatry with molten images of pagan religions, but it also includes mental images of God that are erroneous or inadequate. Remember what Paul said uh, to the uh, Areopagus on Mars Hill in Athens. He said, Acts 17, 29, he said, being then the children of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and thought of man. Someone said this regarding idolatry, defining idolatry. He said this, quote, idolatry is thinking anything about God that isn't true or attempting to transform him into something that he isn't. That's idolatry. Thinking something about God that's not true or trying to transform him into something he isn't. How many times have you heard someone say, well, I like to think of God as... Or I don't like to think of God like... Which is usually a prelude to to a denial of something that the Bible says about God. Right? And so people feel free to make their own version of God. They, they, They make him into whatever they want him to be and they emphasize the things they like about him and they minimize the rest. It's kind of like... R.C. Sproul is a great example. You know, we're at the smorgasbord. You're at Ryan's. You're, you're, at, you're at Golden Corral, and you kind of go down the deal, and you're like, okay, hey, there's some, uh, there's some steak. I like that. And, oh, there's some macaroni and cheese. I like that. Oh, there's the broccoli. I'm going to pass on that. You know, and so the point is like, oh, the love of God? I'll take a huge helping of that. The grace of God? Ooh, I'm, I'm going to put that right in. Oh, the, the wrath of God? Yeah, that, that's not for me. I'm going to pass on that. The wrath of God is like the broccoli or the... The, the vegetables, right, that you want to avoid, the Brussels sprouts, if you will. Um, how, how many times have you heard someone say, well, my God is a God of love, or, or my God would never send anyone to hell? You've heard people say that? Well, in their minds, they've crafted an image of God that is inaccurate or incomplete. They have an idol Where? Set up on their living room, on their mantle, in their, over their fireplace? No, where is that idol? Right here, between their ears. It's in their mind. And so we need to make sure that our concept of God includes all that the Bible teaches about him. A.W. Tozer wrote some of the best literature on the character of God that's ever been written in the history of the church. Listen to what he said. He said, we educated Americans can create gods just the same as the heathen can. You can make a god out of silver or wood or stone, or you can make it out of your own imagination. And the God that's being worshipped in many places is simply a God of imagination. He's not the true God. He's not the infinite, perfect, all-knowing, all-wise, all-loving, infinitely boundless, perfect God. He's something short of that. He said this, Christianity is decaying and going down into the gutter because the God of modern Christianity is not the God of the Bible. Prophetic words from a pastor of just maybe four or five decades ago. And you think about the trend in, in evangelical Christianity today to, to lay aside the Bible um, and, and in its place, hey, we want to we we put up images and pictures and videos and any kind of visual aid that we can you know, kind of help this media-saturated generation to worship God better. But rather than help us truly worship God, I think 
Sometimes it, 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 it hinders our worship. It distracts us from, from God and his word. I mean, you've got these elaborate stage sets and video clips and skits and motorcycles jumping over the preacher's head and you name it. Listen, that is making worshiping God impossible. God intended church to be a house of worship, but we've turned it into to the main event. Chuck E. Cheese Church, it's, a, it's entertainment for adults is what it is. Listen to what the Heidelberg Catechism, this is uh, one of the old catechisms that was written uh, centuries ago, question 98, okay, question 98, this happens to be question 98, may not images be permitted in the churches as teaching aids for the unlearned? In other words, hey, is it, is it really that big of a deal to have images in the church to, to help those who are unlearned? And the answer in the catechism is no. It goes on, it says, we should not try to be wiser than God. He wants his people instructed by the living preaching of his word, not by idols that can never talk. I'll never forget going um, on my way to South Africa several years ago. We stopped by, did a little detour through uh, Geneva, Switzerland. We have a friend there. Some of you met John Glass at Man Camp several years ago. He's a pastor there in the Geneva area, and, and uh, he's one of the guys who has exclusive access to uh, Geneva or to, to Calvin's Cathedral, uh, where John Calvin used to preach in Geneva. And, and he has a, a special relationship with a curator there, and he has the, 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 the ability to kind of sneak guys in and, and, and have a look around at this thing, and he actually uh, lets you go up into John Calvin's pulpit. And stand there. I got a picture of standing in John Calvin's pulpit. It's pretty interesting. But, but one of the things that was most fascinating, you walked into this, this huge ancient cathedral. I mean, it was just a gorgeous piece of architecture. And you're just walking around. But it was really plain inside. You're like, man, it's just kind of like whitewashed. And, and, and uh, it was just kind of drab and dreary and kind of grayish. And you're like, man, it's kind of like boring. And then they took you off to the side room. There was a little side chapel. And you walked in there. And there was just all sorts of beautiful paintings and, and, and bright colors everywhere, all over you know, the, the, the ceiling and the walls. And, and the guide said, you know, that's how the entire cathedral used to look. And it was originally a Catholic church. And he said, when John Calvin came to Geneva and they asked him to preach in that in that cathedral, in that church, and to be the pastor, the first thing he had him do was whitewash all that junk off the ceilings and walls. And he said, because I don't want anybody to be, to be distracted from this thing right here. Because, hey, let's face it. I mean, I was a little kid when I was in church, and, and I would get distracted by the lights. I, I knew how many lights there were in our church sanctuary. I'd be counting them all up. and everything. You can imagine people get bored in church and they're just looking around and they're looking at all these pictures and they see the angel flying over here and they see a picture of some Old Testament story. They're like looking around. So they're all distracted from what, what matters most and it's the word of God. And so he had it all whitewashed. And I just thought that was a fascinating example of, of the, the authority and sufficiency of Scripture. And how he wanted that to be the center focus. When somebody walked into that church, they wouldn't be going, wow, this is really a cool church. And they'd be doing this the whole time. They would come and there would be nothing else to look at but the Bible. And the reason why preaching God's word is so important is because it's through his word that God chose to reveal who he truly is. 
And if we're to stay true to God, which is really what we're saying tonight, is staying true to God here, uh, we need to study the Bible to make sure we don't have a false mental image of him. And at the same time, we need to remember that God has provided us with a physical, tangible image of himself. Who is that? Jesus Christ. The Bible says he is the image of the invisible God, Jesus, Colossians 1.15. And in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form, Colossians 2.9. He is the radiance of his glory, the exact representation of his nature, in fact, Jesus said that those who saw him had seen who? God. So Riken says this in closing. He said, in order to come to God in true worship, we don't need to make some kind of idol. All we need to do is come to him through Jesus Christ. Come to him through Jesus Christ. 1 John 5, 21. Little children... Guard yourselves from idols. Not just the molten image kind, the the carved kind, but the idols of our hearts and the idols of our minds. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and just the commandments and how helpful they are and just how gracious you were to give them to us or to keep us, in this case, from having a wrong view of you. And, and being distracted from uh, the one true God by coming up with some man-made image that doesn't even come close to representing you. And uh, Lord, we pray specifically for us, Lord, that you would help us to deal with the idols of our minds and our hearts. Lord, these maybe false views of you that we've, we've, we've gleaned over the years from reading unbiblical things, listening to unbiblical things, listening to false teaching, whatever, Lord, that you would help us to have a true mental picture of you. Um, But also, Lord, these idols of our hearts, Lord, these things that we desire that that lead us to sin, to try to find satisfaction in in getting something that we want rather than being content with with who you are and what you provide. And so, Lord, help us, Lord, to to, uh, avoid uh, these idols and, 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 and to guard our hearts from idols, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.